Hi, and welcome to Long Live the Queen, where we talk about the women who made history. And by we, I mean the royal we, because it's just me. This week, our subject is Margaret of Anjou. Margaret of Anjou was born in 1430 to René, Duke of Anjou, and his wife, Isabella, Duchess of Lorraine. Her father was known as Good King René. He wasn't a king, but he had a pretty good public relations team, I guess. He did, however, have approximately a billion titles. As a child, her nickname was La Petite Creature, or in English, The Little Creature. An endearing nickname? Maybe but it does seem like they could have done much, much better. As a child, she was interested in reading French romances and hunting. Joan of Arc was a prisoner of her uncle in the early part of her life, but Margaret would have been too young to remember the Joan of Arc years. Her family included several prominent women who exercised power in politics, war, and administration as regents and queen lieutenants. Her mother, Isabella of Lorraine, fought wars on behalf of her husband while he was imprisoned from 1431 to 32 and from 1434 to 36. Her paternal grandmother, Yolande Vergon, ruled the Duchy of Anjou as regent for her son when Margaret was a child, repelling an English military presence and supporting the disinherited Dauphin against the English. It has been suggested that this family example provided her with precedence for her later actions as regent for her son. She had many strong female role models in her formative years. She would have learned that not only could women participate in government, but that it was their duty to do so when the men in their lives were unable. In 1444, when Margaret was 14, she met with English envoys and her uncle, the King of France, to discuss her marriage to King Henry VI of England. The discussions went well, and she was married by proxy to the English king. Margaret's dowry equated to buy one, get one free sheep and a complimentary donkey. Not really, but it was itty bitty. It was almost non-existent. And I'm sure we all remember how much the English people liked that from the small scrap of humanity that was Anna Bohemia's episode. He was later pleased to find out that she was just as pretty as he had been told so the king was happy. It was hoped, as always, that the English king, marrying a French princess, would end the century of war that started with King Henry's great-great-grandfather Edward III. For a refresher on the start of that war, check out episode two. A considerable amount of money was spent to get Margaret to England. Loans were taken out by the government in order to pay for the considerable expense of transporting her to England, and solicitation for the loans emphasized the role that the marriage and Margaret herself would play in seeking peace with France. This was a theme that continued throughout the preparations for her wedding. She arrived in England on the 9th of April, 1445, and traveled to London. The trip was not easy. A storm had taken two masts off her ship. It was a rough storm. A squire arrived with a letter from her future husband, King Henry VI. Margaret was so excited to read the letter, she kept the squire on his knees while she read it, and only allowed him to stand and leave when she was finished. Margaret was then mortified to find out that the squire had in fact been King Henry VI. He had dressed up as a squire to view his future wife in person. 
However badly Margaret had thought it had gone, it couldn't have been as bad as when King Henry VIII had tried that same thing with Anna of Cleves. But we'll get back to that in about five kings. It went spectacularly poor. She returned to London on the 28th of May, where she was met by the mayor and aldermen of the city. The predicted turnout for her arrival and the procession was so large that on the 8th of May, an inspection of roofs and balconies was ordered due to the expectation that spectators would use them as vantage points to view her progress. Her ceremonial progress through the city lasted two days, the intervening night spent by custom in the Tower of London. It was accompanied by eight theatrical pageants. Five of these pageants concerned with peace with France, casting Margaret as the symbol or the agent of peace. Three spoke of her spiritual role as redeemer and intercessor. And that seems to be a lot to expect from a 15-year-old queen. Because she was still only 15. And that's how old I was when I had my first real boyfriend and he wasn't a king. I can't even imagine that kind of pressure. In 1445, Margaret of Anjou, at the age of 15, married King Henry VI, who was 23. Don't love that. I suppose at least he wasn't 52. She was crowned Queen of England a month later. The beginning of their marriage seemed like a happy one. They spent a lot of time together by choice. They shared an interest in education, culture, and religion. When she came to England, she furthered her love of learning by helping to establish Queen's College, Cambridge. They spent a lot of time with the King's Aunt Jaquetta and her husband, Richard Woodville. King Henry was more interested in religion than war. He kind of gave off Richard II vibes that way, but the story of Richard II didn't really end well, so fingers crossed. Over the years, the royal couple started displaying their power and control. A breakdown in law and order, corruption, and the distribution of royal land to the king's favorites, and the continued loss of land in France, meant that Henry and his French queen's rule started to become unpopular. The king was now running the country without a regent, because he was an adult. But he had been king since he was a baby, so the regents were used to being in charge. And they didn't like the direction King Henry was taking the country. He started to elevate his own friends, and the more established lords from his father's reign were feeling a little left out. King Henry was also getting increasingly paranoid, but it went largely unnoticed by most, with them considering it more of a king's prerogative. Who's going to check the king? No one. The king had his 57-year-old uncle and former regent arrested for treason. His wife had already put, been put in prison for life, for witchcraft used against the king, for listening to an astrologer who predicted that he would get sick and die. The king's uncle Humphrey was arrested, and he died three days later, maybe of a stroke, maybe of poison. They had actually been very close until Humphrey's wife started something. If you want to hear that story, you can listen to Eleanor Cobham's episode. In 1448, the king was persuaded by his wife, Queen Margaret, to make her good friend and his Aunt Jaquetta's husband, Baron Rivers. 
Jaquetta had married a common man, and this would make him officially noble, even if it was nepotism and mostly honorary. The English were starting to tire of the king and queen's overstepping. They wanted reform. The Duke of York led calls for political reform. He insisted that he supported the king, but not the king's friends or advisors. He was talking in part about Jaquetta and Richard Woodville and the king's half-brothers, who were declared illegitimate even though they had no relation to the English royal family. They shared their mother with the king, a French princess, but their father was a common Welshman, not the last king. At the time, Welshmen were seen as lesser than Englishmen by the English. The Welsh were seen as less intelligent and more barbaric than the English by the English, who ironically were seen that way by the French. The king's mother, being French, likely saw no difference between the English and the Welsh. King Henry's oldest half-brother was then made Earl of Richmond, making him not just legitimate, but also a noble. This is understandable. King Henry had lost both of his parents, and after his uncle Humphrey had died, all of his English uncles were gone. By way of family, all he had was Jaquetta, his aunt by marriage, and his two half-brothers. He had some cousins in France and elsewhere, in Europe, but as far as English relations went, those were all he had. For her part, the Queen made an assassination attempt on the Duke of York. He was calling for reform, and she took that as a threat, not just to her husband, but to any future children they may have. She wasn't messing around. While the king still had no children, York was probably heir presumptive. This attempt failed and was the start of a lifelong rivalry between the Duke of York and Queen Margaret. Assassination attempts will do that to a relationship. These two would become the figureheads of the two factions of the English Civil War, the Wars of the Roses, with the Duke of York leading the Yorkist faction and King Henry, though more often his wife, Queen Margaret, leading the Lancastrian faction. The following year, Queen Margaret made another attempt on York's life, but again failed. She really seemed to have a thing for assassinating people, but she also wasn't very good at it, or York was really good at avoiding it. Although, to me, it seems like if she was really good at it, we wouldn't know about it in the first place. A couple of years later, the king made his other half-brother, Jasper, the Earl of Pembroke, causing more distress with the more established noble families. Nobles had a long history of feeling threatened by new men in their midst. Henry's half-brothers, Edmund and Jasper Tudor, were made lead earls. They were the top of all the earls in England. They were like, Presidents of the Earls. I don't know. <laughs> kind of like royal dukes were above other dukes. This also didn't sit well with their peers, who not only didn't want to follow them, but who likely saw them as their lessers. Edmund, the king's oldest half-brother, was also given the wardship of nine-year-old Margaret Beaufort. He then married her two years later, when she was just barely twelve, and he was 24. Ew. This Margaret was descended from John of Gaunt and Catherine Swinford, whose children were made retroactively legitimate. That's covered in Catherine Swinford's episode. Edmund likely saw this as a way to strengthen his own legitimacy. 
King Henry, it seemed, wanted to make his half-brothers his heirs if he never had children. You can hear about that in Margaret Beaufort's episode. In 1453, the now 23-year-old queen was pregnant with her first child. This would have been a relief after eight years of no pregnancies. With all of his uncles dying childless, Henry had no heirs closer than his distant cousin, the Duke of York, and York's sons. Unfortunately, not too far into her pregnancy, the king got bad news. The French, who had been winning the Hundred Years' War, had successfully repelled all of the English from France. With that, the Hundred Years' War was over, with France winning. At the time, they weren't sure if it was over. The English could always regroup and start war again. They had done that off and on for the last 116 years. But the English would not regroup. Upon hearing this news, King Henry had a catastrophic mental breakdown. He became unresponsive and unable to speak having to be led from the room. He was able to be taken care of as if he were a baby, but he wasn't able to communicate in any way. If you listen to some of the previous episodes, we've talked about King Charles the Mad of France. Charles the Mad was King Henry's maternal grandfather. It is likely that he inherited his mental illness from his grandfather. As was the case with his grandfather's episodes, his episodes seemed to be triggered by stress. Specifically, the stress related to being a king. So the Hundred Years' War was indeed over. England still had Calais, but in 116 years of war, that is all they ended up with. And they had gotten Calais when Edward III had been king. And they had effectively made no progress in the last 75 years. I'm sure there's wars in your lifetime you probably felt went on way too long. But 116 years... The war had lasted since before anyone alive had even been born. No one could remember a peaceful time. For now, the king was incapacitated. Everyone hoped he would come out of it soon, but it quickly became obvious that this wasn't happening. Unlike his grandfather, he had not slipped into a complete coma. He could eat if he was fed, so they could keep him alive. He was just ill-equipped to be king. England needed a regent again, just like when the king had become a king as a baby, which is another thing he had in common with his grandfather. They had both become kings as children, and their uncles had acted as their regents. But all of Henry's uncles and original regents were dead by now, so who to choose? Queen Margaret demanded that it be her. She had, after all, seen both her mother and grandmother take charge when the men in their lives were unable to do it but the council disagreed. England wasn't big on women being in charge, especially women who didn't have husbands to lead them, and especially with women who were French. They had been at war with France for a long time, and they they weren't fans. Though Margaret did have a husband, he was no more than an infant mentally at this time. Instead, the council made the king's cousin regent, the Duke of York, with whom Margaret still had her ongoing feud. Queen Margaret decided to focus on her pregnancy and subsequently the raising of her son, Prince Edward. She likely leaned heavily on her head lady-in-waiting and the closest thing she had to a best friend, her husband's Aunt Jaquetta. Jaquetta was also pregnant, her with her 11th child. 
Jaquetta Woodville and her husband were strong Lancastrian supporters. They had put all of their eggs in the Lancastrian basket. Jaquetta and Queen Margaret would both have been concerned with the threat that the Duke of York potentially posed, especially because his claim to the English throne was very strong. King Henry and Queen Margaret represented the traditionalists who didn't want change. York was leading the reformers who wanted a lot of change. Both sides were bound to clash. It was just a matter of time. York used that time that King Henry was incapacitated to start on some of the reforms he wanted to see in England. King Henry did eventually come out of his mental breakdown after a long 17 months. He woke up on Christmas Day, 1454. By this point, his son, who he was effectively meeting for the first time, was a year old. But his own father had never met him, dying at war just after he was born. Henry didn't waste any time getting rid of the Duke of York. Henry also started reversing all of the changes the Duke of York had made in his absence. This seemed to be the final straw with the York faction. York raised an army to clash with the King's Lancastrian army. York declared, Surrender to us such as we will accuse, and not to resist till we have him which deserves death. Meaning, hand over the Duke of Somerset, who York blamed for the king's behavior for execution, and no one else will get hurt. King Henry responded, By the faith I owe to St. Edward and the crown of England, I shall destroy every mother's son, and they shall be hanged and drawn and quartered. Meaning, absolutely not. Stop this right now, or you will all be executed. The two armies then clashed at St. Albans. York's army was not only larger, but it was more experienced from guarding the northern border from the Scottish. The York army won in a decisive victory, capturing King Henry. This was obviously bad news for Queen Margaret. The Duke of York, along with his cousin, the Earl of Warwick, brought the king to London, where York was made Lord Protector again. But the king was kept alive. Margaret was able to secure support to return to England and secure her husband's release. She did what the women in her family did best. But the English did not appreciate this French woman taking control. They mistrusted her because she was French and mistrusted her more because she was a woman with power. It didn't help that the York faction kept insisting they supported their English king. They just didn't support the queen or the king's advisors. It was a full smear campaign on Queen Margaret. Negotiations ensued between the two factions, which culminated in the Yorkists paying reparations to the Lancastrians and a huge celebration that was planned in which both factions came together to celebrate unification. It was called Love Day. Queen Margaret was paired to walk with her nemesis, Richard, Duke of York. Lancaster nobles and York nobles held hands with their rivals for the people. The celebration was mostly for show. While I think both sides meant well, they seemed to have only become more polarized. Part of me loves the idea of Love Day, just stop fighting and hold hands. But then I think about holding hands with my least favorite person and it loses all of its appeal. Fighting soon started again, this time with York fleeing with his son Edmund to Ireland and York's son Edward fleeing to Calais with York's cousin Warwick. York was able to get support and regroup 
his army, and Warwick was also able to gain support, spreading rumors that the Yorkists were only trying to help the king, who was being taken advantage of by his French wife and greedy advisors. At the Battle of Northampton, the king was again captured, and Queen Margaret this time fled with her son to Scotland for help. Scotland helped Queen Margaret, and she, leading the army, returned to England and fought against her nemesis, the Duke of York, at the Battle of Wakefield. This time, the Lancastrians won, and the Duke of York was killed. His second son, Edmund, was captured and executed after the battle. Both York and his sons had their heads put on pikes overlooking the city of York, the former with a paper crown, so that York would look over York, but mostly to remind the city what would happen to supporters of the Yorkists. The Yorkist faction was now controlled by the Duke's eldest son, 18-year-old Edward, and Warwick, who was now known as the Kingmaker. Warwick was maybe the richest man in all of England, and it seemed with his support, Edward may be able to become king. The armies met for the second time at St. Albans. King Henry laughed and sang throughout the whole battle. His mental health was on a downward trajectory again. Two York knights had been charged to keep him safe during the battle and were charged to let no harm come to him. When Queen Margaret won and regained her husband, she left it up to her seven-year-old son to decide how those York knights were to die. Seven-year-old Edward declared that they should be beheaded. Maybe I'm just a different kind of mother, but letting your seven-year-old son decide that men should be beheaded doesn't seem very responsible. I'm sure Margaret was just doing her best and trying to prepare her young son to be king, but he was only seven. The next year, at the Battle of Towton, the Yorks again gained victory. It was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth this whole time. Queen Margaret, King Henry, and Prince Edward escaped to Scotland, this time together. Henry, hoping to gather support from the northern nobles, re-entered England, but was captured by the Yorkists after being betrayed. Margaret and her son Prince Edward fled to France in an attempt to gain support. For years, Margaret plotted in exile, but was unable to raise an army. She made allies with the King of France, Louis XI, by offering him Calais and a hundred years of peace if he didn't ally with England and instead allied with her. That was too good of an offer for Louis to turn down. During this time, the young Duke of York was crowned king. The king is not dead yet, but long live the king. King Edward was then married to Elizabeth Woodville in secret. When the marriage was announced, it angered many nobles, including Edward's ally, Warwick, the kingmaker. Warwick rebelled against the king, but failed. He then went to France to meet up with Queen Margaret. Warwick married his daughter, Anne, to Queen Margaret's son, Edward, and they teamed up to depose the York King, who Warwick had helped make king in the first place. Warwick was king-making again, this time for Queen Margaret. Margaret wasn't excited about this idea at first. Warwick had to get the king to get Margaret's father to get Margaret to agree. It was a whole process. Eventually, she gave in, having nothing left to lose except her son. This was probably a decision she would come to regret. They were successful, and King Edward was deposed, 
with King Henry being back on the throne once again. This probably cemented Warwick's reputation as a kingmaker. Whoever had Warwick on their side was likely to become king. Warwick seemed to be playing the Game of Thrones with himself, switching to whatever side he felt could help him the most. Warwick was then killed at the Battle of Barnett by the Yorkist army. He would not be kingmaking anymore. This exact day is when Queen Margaret landed in England. So, bad luck for her that her main ally was dead. The Yorkists had not given up, though, and the armies met again at the Battle of Tewkesbury. You can see this portrayed in the stars show The White Queen, based on the Philippa Gregory books. The Yorks came out victorious again in this yo-yo style war. By this point, it must have seemed like the Cousins' War would never end. Something was different this time, though. Margaret was not able to escape with her son or her daughter-in-law, Anne. The daughter of Warwick, the Kingmaker. This is the first battle that Prince Edward had taken part in as a soldier, and he had been killed. Queen Margaret and her daughter-in-law, Anne, were captured. Prince Edward's epitaph read, Here lies Edward, Prince of Wales, cruelly slain whilst but a youth. Anno Domini, 1471, May 4th. Alas, the savagery of men. Thou art the sole light of thy mother, and the last hope of thy race. A bit dramatic, but it was a dramatic time. For Queen Margaret, losing her only child seemed to be the point at which she gave up fighting the war. Without her son, what was the point? This queen, who fought so courageously for her son, her husband, and her house, would become not even a man described by Shakespeare as a beast. She-wolf of France, but worse than wolves of France, women are soft, mild, pitiful, and flexible. Though stern, obdurate, flinty, rough, remorseless. But Shakespeare was pandering to the Tudors, so of course Margaret of Anjou was a villain. He wasn't trying to gain any popularity for the Lancastrians. With Prince Edward no longer a threat, there was no need to keep King Henry alive. He died in the tower, they said, of melancholia, but he was probably smothered in his sleep. Princess Anne, Warwick's daughter, was put in the custody of her sister and her brother-in-law, George, the king's brother. Queen Margaret was put in the custody of one of her old ladies-in-waiting, who was now a loyal Yorkist. That had to be a rough position to be in, though they had once been friends, so maybe it was okay. Three years later, she was ransomed back to France, where she lived out the rest of her life as a poor relative to the king of France. She died in 1482, at the age of 52. She was survived by no one, her only child and husband, having both been killed by the Yorkists. And that is where we will leave it for now. It's a sad one for sure. Margaret experienced very little peace in her life. Most of her lifetime was spent in battle. She had hoped to restore her husband to the throne and then put her son up next to replace him when he eventually died. But none of that came to fruition, and she died alone. She was a pretty fantastic queen militant, especially for that time, when women weren't always taken seriously as leaders of the military. 
That's what got her the not nice nickname of She-Wolf. But I say own it. It's a pretty rad nickname. King Henry VI was the last Lancastrian king after the House of Lancaster ruled for three generations. The House of York was now in charge, but it wouldn't be for long, so stay tuned. You can share your thoughts with me at longlivethequeen at gmail.com or on Facebook or Instagram at longlivethequeen. Long live to all the queens out there. And until next week, bye.